You're listening to Freshly Brewed, episode 11. I'm your host, Jeff. If there's one thing I love to do, it's travel. And one of the coolest parts of travel, to me at least, is flying. Over the years, I've been fortunate to fly a lot. And when I fly, I get really curious about a lot of the elements of commercial air travel. What's the pilot really doing in the cockpit? What happens if someone tries to open the door to the plane? How much of a role does autopilot play? Why was the gate agent not so nice to me? Why do delays happen? In this episode, I pose these questions, and more, to Evan Ryder, first officer with one of North America's major airlines and founder of North America's largest flight simulation conference. Freshly Brewed is now boarding Zone 1 for this non-stop podcast to Knowledge Land. Buckle up and prepare for takeoff. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Freshly Brewed. Here's your host, Jeff Fenton. Freshly Brewed, episode 11, and we are taking this episode into the skies, so to speak, because I am sitting virtually across from Evan Ryder, first officer of a North American airline, co-founder of The Continent's biggest flight simulation conference, also happens to be an ex-consultant business school grad with I just found this out my rival school so I'm still I'm still uh I'm still going to interview you Evan welcome to Freshly Brewed well, thank you very much thanks for having me uh I, I love to ask this during this time where are you located and how has your caffeine intake changed while in quarantine <laughs> that's that's actually an interesting question so up until about maybe a month ago I really would say I never drink coffee um, and that includes in university and that included at the airlines as well. My entire career, my entire life, people are like, well, you made it through high school with no coffee, but you'll never make it through business school. You'll never make it through university. You'll never make it through flying. Made it all the way through that. And then it was moving in with my girlfriend and now I'm drinking coffee. So it's bad. <laughs> Someone told me, and I think it's brilliant. Coffee is energy on credit, <laughs> right? It is. I can see that. I can see that. So anyway, we're living now in Collingwood, Ontario. I grew up in Toronto, pretty much lived in this general vicinity most of my life, with the exception of a brief three and a half year period where I was out in British Columbia pursuing the flying dream that got me to where I am today. And usually we're in downtown Toronto, but for the time being with quarantine being what it is, we figured we'd spend the time out somewhere a little bit more interesting. So we've got lots of hiking and biking, a little more space here than we had downtown in a 600 square foot condo. You know, I think you're doing it the right way. I'm in my 750 square foot condo and I got to tell you, three, almost three months in, I'm getting a little bit stir crazy. The routine <laughs> is finally catching up to me in a bad way. Yeah. And I envy anyone who can be in nature during this time and be out there a little bit more uh, more freely. So uh, it, might, it must be hard because you were used to just flying around the world or flying around the continent and now you're in a totally different routine. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think it was about this time last year, I was in Orlando for, I think it was eight or nine days. And it was the longest period of time I would be in one city for at least the past three years, for about seven or eight days in the same place, like and including sleeping in the same hotel bed for eight days in a row, which was pretty uncommon. And now it's like, I've been here for almost three months, I think. And it's like, this is just weird. That is so cool that, uh, well, first of all, it's cool that you're, you were able to, to, travel as much as you did. And we're going to talk about that. Um, but I guess it's also cool that it's a totally new experience uh, and and I guess a way of living, even if temporarily. 
yeah, ho hopefully temporarily anyway, but uh, yeah, definitely different, but it's, it, we're very fortunate to have had this, uh, this place that we can use and kind of hang out and spend some time together and spend some time in nature that definitely we wouldn't have had otherwise. Like it, it's a really weird time right now, but it, we're also pretty fortunate. And I think for people in my industry, but also just anybody, like when else are you going to kind of get a three month sort of almost vacation or at least ability to work from home? You know, you can't go anywhere. You can't really do anything uh, as far as, you know, the usual vacation-y type things that you do. But I'm kind of looking at it as this is the one chance probably in my life that I won't be working for an extended period of time. So I'm enjoying it and trying to make the most of it. I love that. And and a quick digression. I listen a lot to Jay Onright and Dan O'Toole, Jay and, Jay and Dan podcast, two uh, very funny Canadian sportscasters. And they were saying it's forced them to spend the evenings at home with their family and have dinner with their family because their jobs are doing evening recordings. And it kind of gives them this whole new take for better and for worse uh, of life with without that routine. So enough about uh, COVID and quarantine, and we're not going to use the word unprecedented on this podcast. Thank you. We're all, we're all sick of it. I want to know how you became a pilot. Yeah, uh, that's, that's an interesting story. I was, as you mentioned, in consulting at the time. This goes back to probably 2014 or so. And I had a private license at the time. So just like you can get a boating license or a fishing license, you can get a private airplane license and fly four or eight seater little airplanes around. So I was doing that on the side of consulting. And it was kind of like, you know, friends, family, anybody who was crazy enough to come up in a small airplane with me, we'd take them on a tour of downtown Toronto where we'd head out to Niagara Falls, see that from the air, which are all pretty cool sites. And I was doing that. And funnily enough, I was actually on a project site that overlooked Buttonville Airport. So I was sort of looking at these small airplanes taking off and landing every day. And it was kind of like, you know, if I am going to make enough money to be able to fly recreationally, I'm going to be working so much that I won't have any time to fly. And if I don't work as much and fly some more, I won't have any money to fly anymore. So it's like, how do you put those two things together? And it was always a passion of mine for whatever reason. No idea where it came from. Neither of my parents, nobody in my family is a pilot. But it just sort of was something that was always interesting to me. And so one day around this time of year, actually, I quit my job, moved across the country, went out to British Columbia, got my commercial license, and basically never looked back since. I grew up playing Flight Simulator, Microsoft Flight Simulator. I love, love, love to travel. And I actually like I look forward to going through the airport. I look forward to the plane um, when, you know, a lot of people might not. What is actually involved in becoming a pilot who is flying those commercial planes that we all fly as customers? So that world is changing sort of by the minute now. If you go back to January before this not unprecedented COVID situation that came up, back in January, we were at a real shortage for pilots in North America, especially, but then around the world as well. And so what was involved at that time was you would go to a flight school or a university or a college program designed for aviation. You would, in many cases, also probably get some kind of a degree. But the flying part is working through the certifications that you need. So there's a private pilot license. Then you add on a multi-engine, an instrument rating, a commercial rating. And with those four things, you have about 200 or 300 flying hours probably about the same number of hours of ground instruction. And that's what will get you the ability to fly relatively small airplanes in most cases. So now you've got 250 hours, but you're just like a first time chef. Nobody wants to hire a chef and it'd be their <laughs> first job, right? So where are you going to go to get that first hour that somebody else pays you for? And that's 
historically been one of the most difficult things for pilots to do. So 15 years ago, you would drive probably most of the way across the country, stopping at every small town anywhere north of Manitoba that you could find, drop off a resume and hope for the best. Five years ago, you still had to do that, but you could do it virtually. And in January, with 250 hours, you could get a job with someone like Jazz or with someone like um, an operator up north, like SkyCare Air Ambulances or Orange or something to that effect. Now with what's happening, you know, hard to say where that goes, but because of the pilot shortage, there was this huge acceleration of pilots being moved to the big airlines like Western and Air Canada, that just pulls everybody through the system, right? So if you imagine you're a first-time pilot, if the person who's more senior than you gets hired at Jazz, now you take their spot. And it just moves everyone through that way. So when the industry was moving really quickly, it's much, much easier to be able to find a job and get into this business than it might be now, and certainly than it was 20 years ago. I fly with people who might have had to have 20,000 hours to be doing what they're doing on this kind of an airplane. But now they only have four or 5,000 hours just because the industry has moved so quickly with this shortage and the retirements that were happening up to the beginning of the year. But I have to imagine that when you get to the level where you're ready to fly commercial, um, yeah, you could use the analogy of like a new chef and maybe they're more at risk of, you know, messing up the recipe. But I have to imagine using that analogy you know how to cook properly. Like at that point, you're you're ready and capable to fly a plane with people in it. I think coming out of like flight school at 250 hours, you're honestly, you're probably not. Uh, it, it There's a lot that happens through experience at your first couple of jobs. Flight schools are very sterile environments. So there are worlds where we only go when it's perfect. We only go when the weather is great. If there's anything wrong with the airplane, I mean, anything at all, we just don't go because there's no reason to go. There's no mission. There's no people waiting for you at the other side. Commercial flying is a little bit different. We can't just say, well, there's a few clouds in the sky, so we're not going to go today. Now, of course, if if it is really bad weather, if there's thunderstorms, you know, there are safety considerations that come up. But the level at which you would fly in commercial flying is very different than the level you'd fly as a student. And so your first few jobs, you start to build some capability, you get some experience you wouldn't see in flight school. You're going to be flying in actual weather conditions, which you probably don't do in flight training. You're going to be flying in a situation where, you know, maybe there was a maintenance issue. It's perfectly safe to go, but in flight school, you'd say, no, we'll go tomorrow. And in commercial aviation, you say, yeah, we can live with this risk. There's a procedure associated with it. So we'll follow that procedure. We'll fly the airplane safely, but we have to live without this piece of equipment that we might otherwise have. So there's some things that you build over those first few jobs when you're flying smaller airplanes. Yes, you're still flying people, but you're probably flying six or seven people, not 200. Got it. So I am giddy to ask this next question because uh, I, I I just have been in the the plane so many times, and I've always wondered so many things about what's happening <laughs> in the cockpit and what's going into this incredible experience of flight. So this is gonna you know maybe it's hard for you to simplify it, and I'm probably trivializing it, but can can you put into layman's terms like the experience of what a pilot does from when they step on the plane to when you land like what's happening when they walk on the plane there's so many things and dials and like what what's what's going on 
Well, uh, so assuming you're talking about commercial flying, you're talking about you know stepping onto an airliner, usually the first thing that I do is go look and see whether we've been catered yet. And if I can get some food out of the galley before the passengers can get to it, that's number one. Okay. That's, that's, okay. The first that's interesting. I didn't think you were going to say that. So that's that's like me any hour of the day. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, just check the kitchen. Yeah, that's always the first good step. No, um, in, in all seriousness, it's, it is a very unique experience. And I mean, the flying part, the actual, you know, from the time you take off to the time that you land is probably, at least generally, the easiest part of our jobs. We aren't really doing all that much. The difficult part about being a pilot is everything that leads up to that. So when you get on the airplane, we're going to start with doing a series of safety checks. Typically, well, there's always two of us in the commercial operation. So one of us is going to be the person who actually operates the controls that day. The other person is going to do a series of supporting tasks. And we just alternate that back and forth. Sometimes it's per day. Sometimes it's per flight leg. Depends on the operation. So the person who's actually flying the airplane, they do a series of checks. The person who's supporting that day will typically go outside, have a look at the airplane, see, make sure everything looks like it's in good shape. Basically, we're making sure nothing's fallen off since right. the last time somebody flew it. And then once we get into the actual flight deck again, we're doing the things that are required to prepare for the flight. So that might be checking weather, checking equipment outages, both at the airports and with the airplane, looking through maintenance records to make sure everything's as it should be, actually physically setting up the airplane, putting the route into our navigation computers, initializing systems, going through checklists together. That probably takes a good 35 to 45 minutes in the airplane I fly can be longer in some of the bigger airplanes, can be shorter in some of the smaller airplanes. But generally, we're the checkers at this point. So we're making sure that everyone else who is supposed to have done their jobs has actually done their jobs. And that's including things like, uh-oh, somebody forgot to put fuel in. Let's go give them a call. Where's the caterers? I'm hungry. Like, let's get them here. You know, right. they should be doing their job. You walk onto the airplane and you find out that the security check hasn't been done or that they haven't finished grooming yet. There's all these things that have to get done. And when you step on the airplane as a passenger, probably 75% of that is already finished. But it's amazing to me the number of things that have to go perfect for a flight to leave on time. Like we think about, you know, as passengers anyway, we're like, okay, the flight left on time, you know, whatever, that's great. But for me as a pilot and for people in the industry, it's kind of neat to look at how many people, I mean, there's probably over a hundred people that have done probably, I don't know, 70 to a hundred different tasks for one flight to leave on time. And all those things have to be done perfectly in sequence every time for you to push back at the time you're supposed to push back. That's kind of cool. You know, just to jump in on that, I was listening to Elon Musk talk about space travel and, you know, he's, he's preparing for this upcoming launch. And one of the things he said, and I love the way he said it, he said, there are so many things that have to go right. So the thing that I'm most proud of when one of these things takes off and lands successfully is that everything that had to go right went right. And we put so much into making that happen. And I feel like in that spirit, and I, even you just saying that made me realize how much I take for granted as a passenger how many things are going on in the background that need to align? And then when it's delayed, everyone's freaking out. Yep. Think about how many like legitimate reasons could cause a plane to be delayed. Yep. And they're, you know, particularly with our operation, but I think most North American operators are like this. People think, you know, and I, I even as a passenger, sometimes I get annoyed by a delay and we think, oh, nobody cares about this. Trust me when I say we are honored about delays and we do our absolute best to try to mitigate them wherever we can. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's probably in the four or 5% of delays are truly controllable things that wow. the airline could have fixed. 
most of them, so the other 95% are going to be weather, are going to be something mechanical that really nobody could have done anything about, just things break sometimes. And the biggest one is air traffic control restrictions, especially when you're talking about flying into some of the busiest airspaces in the world, whether that be Toronto in Canada, New York in the United States, London in the United Kingdom. If you're flying into any of these airspaces, the reality is there's just not enough pavement for the number of airplanes. So the vast majority of a delay comes from the fact that somewhere along that operation, there just wasn't enough space for you. And so whether it's your inbound flight was delayed or whether they've had to switch airplanes because of that delay or whether you can't go because there's too many airplanes in the air, that's what the majority of a delay is. But when it's something that's on us, and even when it isn't, we as pilots report every single delay. So if I am going to push back 30 seconds after I was supposed to, I have to write a report to my manager. And if that report doesn't explain what they're looking for, I'm going to get an email about it saying what actually happened. And it's usually, well, you know, one of those hundred things I just mentioned didn't happen in the right order. We were ready to go, but the gate agent didn't give us the piece of paper that we need in time because they were busy handling a passenger who had some extra assistance required. You know, that can be the reason for a delay, but it's one minute or it's two minutes and that kind of thing gets tracked and looked at. And over time, they, of course, try to resolve those things and make them better. It's interesting how you you mentioned that um, there's so many different things that can go wrong. I'm curious who is the who is the uh, the quote unquote CEO of each operation? Is it the pilot? Does the buck stop with the pilot, or is it a collaboration between the ground crew, the pilot, the gate agent? Who, who's who's the uh, where? Yeah, where does the buck stop? I think at the end of the day, it does stop with the pilots, but it is a collaborative effort. So everyone is there to try and do the safest thing possible. And it's sort of like anybody can stop the snowball at any point, right? So if anybody sees something that's unsafe, whether it's a ground handler, whether it's a gate agent, whether it's a person who's been assigned to look at the airplane to see if there's icing contaminant on the wings, anybody can kind of put their hand up and say, hang on a second, we need to look at this issue and everything stops and we do that. But at the end of the day, we're the people who we as the pilots are the people who are going to tell the ground crew to push us back and ultimately are going to try and get that airplane in the air. So it's going to be on us to make sure that all these steps that we need to do have been followed and to help us do that. Of course, operators put in policies and standard operating procedures and checklists and things like that to make sure that we're checking all the things that we're supposed to check in order to make sure that airplane can go where it needs to go safely. So you take the bird to the runway Yep. My favorite part, you know, that's my sound. Yeah. You rev up the, uh, rev the engine, you, you take her off. Uh, how long until you're hitting the autopilot button? Yeah, n- nothing feels like that first feeling the first time that you roll an airplane down the runway. And it doesn't matter whether it's a small plane or whether it's a big airplane. It's always just such a cool feeling. And when you're the person who's there pulling back on the yoke or pulling back on the joystick and actually feeling the airplane lift off the ground, it's a pretty amazing moment for sure. Autopilot's a great question. It's one of the things that I'm really passionate about. And that's actually the other way around. I'm very passionate about hand flying. I think in the industry, broadly and globally, we don't fly airplanes enough manually. Now, most operators generally give the pilots the choice of when they will turn the autopilot on, when they'll turn it off. This is in North America. Some global operators will do things differently. Some force the use of automation at times during flights. Some people and some operators are more lenient about it. The standard procedure for our company that most people have seemed to establish is they'll turn the autopilot on around a thousand feet in the air. So that might be one or two minutes after takeoff. 
and many people will leave the autopilot on until about one or two minutes prior to landing. So you're talking about actually flying with your hands and feet the airplane for two or three minutes in an average flight. That's what a lot of people do. That's not necessarily what I do, and it is situational. So if there's a particular departure procedure that requires us to hand fly or there's a particular approach that requires us to actually fly the airplane, we'll do it that way. Of course, we do a lot of flying by hand in the simulator, and we're always able to intervene if we ever have to. Okay, but this is what I'm curious about. So let's say it's you're 1,000, 2,000 feet for, you know, the conscious decision you make, it's time to go on autopilot, you hit the autopilot button. And I know it's got to be that simple. There's just an autopilot button. Um, I'm smiling as I say this to all my listeners. Uh, Is, is autopilot knowing I'm here, I want to get so let's say I just left Pearson Airport in Toronto, I want to get to Boston. Is autopilot now completely knowing when to turn it when to elevate what to do next or is autopilot doing it but you need to be kind of telling autopilot okay i want you to go up 2000 feet i want you to turn right how much of it is truly auto so there's different levels of automation you can use there's a base level of automation that is what you describe where the airplane is effectively doing what you tell it so i say turn right to this heading and the airplane turns right. And I say climb 2,000 feet, and the airplane climbs 2,000 feet. There's also more advanced navigation. So you can navigate laterally and say, I want you to follow the pre-programmed flight plan that I've put in. Now it's going to make the turns to follow along each of those points. Just like, you know, imagine your GPS in your car. Imagine if your car just followed the GPS. That's effectively what it can do. And there's vertical navigation that will do that as well. So I can say, I want you to climb 2,000 feet at this point. Or I can say, I want you to descend from 35,000 feet to cross this point at 2,000 feet. And it will do the math, and then it will start descending at the time it needs to descend and hopefully meet that restriction. So when the pilot comes on and is like, you know, we're experiencing a little bit of, this is my pilot voice, you know, we're experiencing a little bit of uh, turbulence. Uh, we are going to just, uh, you know, ascend uh, 2,000 feet. Uh, thank you. Buckle up. When, when the pilot does that, it, is the pilot saying, I need plane i need you to go up a couple thousand yeah they feel this thing the plane shaking yep wow yeah that's exactly how that works and as i say there's different levels of automation that you'll use depending on the circumstance so in a very very busy environment say you're leaving toronto pearson there's usually a lot going on we have a bunch of instructions it's easier if we turn the autopilot on that way both of us are paying a little bit more attention to air traffic control you're still flying the airplane and that's one of the things that right. you know people don't necessarily think about is you know just because the autopilot button is on it's not really like a cruise control in the car where you're just like okay i can you know just forget about this now. In fact, you're probably even more worried about the airplane when it's on autopilot because I'm watching it to make sure it doesn't screw up. And it does screw up. It will try to sometimes send you too fast in the descent. It will sometimes miss an altitude. It's not supposed to do that, but it does. So it's our job to sit there and actually be actively monitoring it. And I would say I'm almost more on my guard in a very you know busy environment, like just having taken off or just about to land. I'm more on my guard when the autopilot's on or when the other person's flying and the autopilot's on versus when either of us is hand flying. I'm like, all right, we kind of know what's going on because we're the ones who are doing it. You're in the air, autopilot's on. Let's say it's like a... I don't know what you would classify this, but like a five hour flight, like you're going from Toronto to LA. So the, the bird is just, it's going smoothly in the direction of LA, autopilot's on, no turbulence. Do, does it get boring to just stare at these dials and at clouds ahead and you're just kind of 
you know, waiting for something to go wrong, which hopefully doesn't happen. Does it get really boring? Yeah, that that's the easy part of our job. So I've tried to explain a lot about you know, what it takes to get the airplane in the air and all the actual work of taking off and landing. That's where we actually do work. When we're in the air, everything's pretty easy. And you're right. I mean, that's that's where the autopilot is fantastic because it can fly straight and level forever and nothing's going to happen. And you'll know any second anything goes wrong. So you really can take that time to relax. I think it depends on how you look at it. For me, I tend to do a little bit shorter flights, so I haven't actually had to sit in the cruise phase of flight for six hours. But you know, if you do that, you're doing it a little bit less in a month. So I suppose the amount of time that you're actually physically sitting in the plane is probably pretty similar. People will read, people will talk to each other. There's you know, the odd thing to do here and there. You're talking to your dispatchers, you're looking at fuel, the flight attendants will come in with a meal, maybe if you're lucky, depending on who's hungry in the back. So I find there's usually stuff to do, but you definitely would get bored if you just sat there and kind of stared at things the whole time, in my opinion. But I've flown with people who do that and they just find it calming. So, you know, they might have a family at home. Their life is crazy busy all the time. This is their two or three hours to just chill and they love it. And they're super happy to just not have to talk to anybody for a couple hours and just hang out. That's so cool. And there's, like I said, I always find there's stuff to do. You know, there might be a new bulletin that comes out from the company. Um, not saying that I've ever brought a book in and read a book in flight, because that would not be permissible necessarily. But, you know, that that sometimes happens on occasion or, you, you know, bring the newspaper up. Whatever it is, there's, you know, usually something like that. The reality is uh, a lot of operators, ours included actually, will allow you to have one pilot who's not actively flying. So that might be reading a book or that might be doing something else. That's perfectly permissible. And in fact, the science on that shows that people are more attentive and more alert if they are doing something else. So you're more likely to catch the airplane slightly veering off course if you're actually reading a book and you kind of look up every now and again, versus if you're just sitting there in a trance, not paying attention because you've been staring at the same thing for the last hour, you're less likely to find that. Sometimes I'll be on a flight and I'll say to, like, let's say my, my friend who I'm traveling with, I'll say, okay, they got to speed this thing up. Like, they got to they gotta throttle this thing. Just like, I know they can do it. I know they can get us there a little faster. Uh, how, how fast can a plane actually fly? And why is uh, there a difference between how fast it does fly and how fast it actually could fly? So the biggest thing that's going to impact your time in the air is going to be the wind. No matter how fast the airplane can fly, short perhaps of the Concorde, basically all commercial airliners kind of go the same speed. They can vary within about maybe 0.04 of the speed of sound, uh, probably for most major commercial airliners as far as how fast they actually can go. The reality is that if I put the pedal to the metal and go as fast as I can go versus if I go the speed that the operator wants me to fly, I might save one or two minutes on the flight. That's pretty much it. It's really very limited control that we have. It feels nice. You're like, I'm right there at the very edge. It feels like you're going there faster. But then you look at it afterwards and you're like, huh, it was supposed to be an hour and it was 58 minutes. And it really wasn't very much. You can actually save a lot more time taxiing around on the ground or asking for a shortcut from air traffic control, which we do quite frequently. But the biggest thing that will impact anything is out of our control, and that's the wind. You're flying, going out to the West Coast. You've got the wind in your face most of the time. It's going to be a longer flight than when you come back. There's not a whole lot that we can do when it comes directly to speed that we can control that with. But there are things that can be done. And actually, there's a lot of science that goes into how airplanes are rooted. So if it's a longer flight, especially, say you're going to China or you're going to the UK, 
they'll actually route your flight in a way that is beneficial for the wind to help you out. If you've got a headwind, they'll try to route you out of the wind or they'll try and keep you lower where the wind isn't as strong. So there's a lot of work that goes into the back end planning of the flight. Nothing that we as pilots typically can control, but a lot of work that goes into the back end to give the flight the most efficient path of getting there. In fact, these systems actually talk to each other. So many of the airlines use a similar system for dispatching and it will literally take the average of every single plane that has left a place like LaGuardia at 8.30 a.m. on a Thursday. Every single airplane, it will look at the average taxi time, the amount of fuel that it burned to give you the most accurate projection of how much fuel you can expect to burn. And it will do that through all phases of flight. So on Wednesday at 11 a.m. in the summer, here's where on average the best wind is. And it'll actually try to put you there if it can. Oh, the, the amount of things that are happening, it's like an iceberg, right? Like we see the tip of the iceberg and exactly. so much going on below. Um, and then we pilots just go and say, oh yeah, sure, I'll take that shortcut. And then we ruin the whole thing by just trying to go more direct. But in fact, we've gone more into the wind and it makes it worse. Safety is such a, such a popular topic when it comes to air travel. And, you know, I'm definitely, you know, and, and I'm lucky and, and I'm grateful that I've never had an inherent fear of flying. I've, I've always... Uh, felt that given the, the catastrophe that could happen, it it means that society is putting more and more and more effort into making sure it's safe. As a pilot who you know risks his life every day, he goes out and does his job. Where where do you stand on the safety of air travel? I think I risk my life more walking across the parking lot or driving to work than I do actually in the airplane. And I mean, statistically, that that's the case, right? It's still the safest mode of travel that we have around the world from anything that you can compare. But there's no doubt that the safest thing to do is always in our minds. And we're always trying to think about what might happen or what could go wrong. So I've heard you describe like, you know, you're kind of in this box all the time when you're flying. And the concern is, is that box starts to shrink, right? So if there's a maintenance issue, the amount of things or the amount of directions you can go shrinks. And if there's some weather, now that box gets a little bit narrower. And if now we have another problem, maybe there's an unruly passenger, that box is getting smaller and smaller of things that you can do in order to alleviate risk. And so we're always thinking about that kind of thing. Even when the autopilot's on and even when we're sitting there at 35,000 feet, if we hear that two hours down the road, there's some holding going on or there's some weather going on, now I'm starting to think, well, okay, what does that mean for my fuel when I get to that point? What does that mean for the air traffic controller who I'm going to be talking to? If, if they sound extremely busy on the frequency, they've got 15 airplanes that they're dealing with. I need to be a little bit more alert. They might miss something. There might be a traffic you know, conflict to be aware of. So much like when you're driving on a highway in your car, you may not actively be thinking about checking your blind spot, but hopefully you're always looking at those mirrors. You're always seeing who's around you. And you know, if this truck suddenly pulls in your way, there's nobody on your left, you can move there. We're constantly doing that throughout the flight, whether the autopilot's on or the autopilot's off, wherever we are, trying to think about what would happen if this happened. What's the biggest risk? I think it's hard to quantify one. Like there's, there's so many of these little risks. I don't think there's anything that, you know, comes that comes out of me as one flight or every flight, I'm worried about this the most. But the reality is the what seems to cause the most number of accidents would be either weather or some kind of a mechanical failure that's catastrophic. Right. And I'm not talking weather like there's a thunderstorm, we're terrified about it. I'm talking about you know really, really severe weather that we would normally fly around that somehow you've gotten yourself into. And of course, if you've ever watched a show like Air Crash Investigations or Mayday, you'll know that there's never one factor, right? There's something that may have started a chain 
12 links ago and that chain never got broken. And that usually starts with something mechanical or starts with some sort of weather and it will then move down that chain of events to something that becomes catastrophic. So a lot of the training that we hear and a lot of the things we talk about are trying to find a way to break that link in the chain. You know, Maybe it isn't the first thing. Maybe we haven't noticed three or four different things that are a problem, but at some point along that list, unless you know all those factors line up perfectly, it's pretty hard to have an accident. I have to ask one silly question. I mean, some of my questions have already been silly. Hit me. No, I've been good. Um, how is the plane door locked? And, and how do you open it from the outside? Because I, I only see it being opened from the inside. Yeah, so the, I mean, this is going to be different based on every airplane that you fly. Some of the doors that, and we're talking again, big commercial jetliners here, some of them are very easy. They have just literally one big lever that you move 180 degrees from side to side and you can open that way. Others like the airplane I fly are so complicated that I don't, I think you need a PhD basically to be able to open and close the door. Um, the flight attendants always laugh at us, but most of us pilots, we never open and close airplane doors, which right. is not a thing that we do. So uh, I know how to do it. I was trained on it once. I could probably figure it out, but it might take me 10 minutes in a YouTube video to actually get the door closed properly, whereas they just laugh at me and they're like, it's so easy. You just do this, 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 and this. And like their hands look like one of those cartoons where you can't see the hands moving. Yeah. There's just like little lines there. Um, but the way that they're designed on basically all airplanes is so that they cannot be opened in the air. So you have pressure that is forcing the air against the side of the airplane, which is what keeps us alive. That same pressure is set up so that the door can't be pulled inward, and that's how they typically have to open. So it's either a plug-style door or it's a door that you have to pull in to get it open, and neither of those things you'd be able to do if the airplane is actually in the air. Okay, so I have to ask about this. Yeah. Sometimes when I you know get up on a, on a flight and I walk near even where the emergency exit row is and there's that door with the handle like the emergency exit yeah and i'm always like oh yeah i'm gonna accidentally knock into that handle and crack the door <laughs> so first of all you're telling me that is physically impossible i've never tried but no <laughs> it shouldn't be possible okay what about an unruly passenger who just shatters a window is everyone um is everyone going to pass away if that happens no, so the windows are not even, I don't think they're glass. I don't know what they're made of, but they're probably made of some kind of material that you couldn't just like smash into and shatter. And they're, I don't know how many layers thick on your average commercial airplane, but thick enough that you don't have to worry about it. I mean, that window is probably handling somewhere between 12 to 15 times like PSI basically. So there's a lot of pressure on that window as is. You'd have a tough time trying to break it. Got it. Um, yeah, so I wouldn't be too worried about that. I will say you mentioned the door and it is kind of funny because opening the door from the outside, the big concern there, and actually anytime that you're on the ground, the big concern is making sure that the door isn't armed, which means if the door is armed, you open the door, the slide will pop out. And that does happen a couple times a year where someone will accidentally open a door. This is across the world. Someone will open a door by accident, the slide will pop out, and that's not really a great day for your career in the uh, aviation industry. It's kind of expensive fix. So um, th that is really the biggest concern. So we're always afraid if there's a non-standard situation where we're having to go up and open the door, it's like, let's make sure that this door isn't armed. There's not going to be a slide that comes out at you. There's only two or three airports that we go to where on occasion, we as the air crew will actually open or close a door. The majority of the time it's done by the people on the ground, right. but there's a few airports that are very small that we go to where we have to do that. And it's actually funny because there'll be four or five of us, like flight attendants and pilots who sort of walk up the stairs to the airplane and the door is closed. We're all looking at each other like, who's going to open this? Because none of us really want to do it. And like, we all kind of know how to do it, but nobody's really like 
I know how to do this. So eventually someone's like, all right, you know, here, I'll just, I'll just do it. I think about the first flight that I was sort of old enough to remember, um, or that I kind of remembered the whole experience. And I think about that flight. I think about flying today in 2020, uh, early, early 2020 before the world changed. Yeah. And in a way, you know, a lot's changed. Uh, airports are more modern. Planes are nicer. Food's, you know, in first class, food's incredible. Um, but yet, a plane's a plane. It gets you from point A to point B in probably similar time. Uh, what do you see changing, if anything, over the next two decades? That's a good question. I wish I wish I had a good answer for you. If I did, I would probably buy a lot more airline stocks and <laughs> probably be able to make some money off of it. Uh, you know, it's definitely a lot has changed since I was a kid. I remember being able to go up to the flight deck when you were in cruise and talk to the pilots. It was one of the yep. most you know exciting things that you do on a flight. And I've talked to people who flew during those times and they loved it. I mean, for to your point about boredom earlier, like that was what you used to do for a six hour flight. You just have this stream of kids and families and parents coming up to the flight deck. You'd bring your dad or you'd bring your son on a flight with you and they could sit in the cockpit the whole time. It's just stuff we can't do anymore. Um, but at the same time, if you go back 40 or 50 years, airplanes were crashing at a pretty alarming rate by comparison to what you see today. Whereas in the modern world, we have the safest mode of transportation and it's only getting better. Typically every year we see less and less, you know, major accidents, less and less fatalities. So it's definitely improved in the safety element. And I don't know if the experience is quite what it used to be, but I guess if you get to where you're going safely and more or less on time, that's probably a good result. Where does aviation go in 20 years from now? There's a lot of talk about the increase of automation. Mm -hmm. Do we see, you know, has the last pilot been born? I think for sure the last fighter pilot's been born. I don't know why we would keep sending up human-powered fighter pilots or fighter airplanes. You know, that just doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not sure the public is ready to accept a pilotless airplane or even a single pilot airplane. I mean, there's just so much that can go wrong in that type of environment whether it be an outside threat, a mechanical issue, and even something that we haven't figured out yet. I mean, I as a pilot can look at a cloud and say, I don't want to go through that. I'm going this way. A computer can. Oftentimes, we'll be flying and our weather radar will say there's nothing in front of us. And I look at a cloud and I'm like, I am not going through that because if we do, people in the back are going to break their ankles. So there's still quite a bit that we can do that computers can't. I think we are a long way from even accepting driverless cars in a broad scale. I don't think we'll see much in the way of, you know, humanless pilots or humanless airplanes, I should say, anytime soon. But beyond that, I don't know. I honestly don't don't know that the aviation industry will look that different in 20 years. Aviation moves very slowly. Yeah. You know, we see technological advances in other industries that seem like they happen in the flash and with us in flying we're still using some of the technologies from the 60s. The U.S. just recently upgraded some air traffic control systems that were literally from 1940. Like that's what they were using to move airplanes because it works and it's safe. And because if we're going to make a change that's going to affect hundreds of thousands of people's lives, we need to make darn sure that that change is going to be safe enough to operate in a broad scale. So I honestly don't see it being all that different. I imagine that you know, you'll know you see these gradual improvements in safety. You'll see these gradual improvements in the way cabins are designed. Maybe now with the health and safety concerns, we'll see some changes to how ventilation systems work on airplanes. But I, I imagine that in 2040, aviation looks relatively similar to what it does today. But that's just 
that's just my uneducated opinion. If you have a better one, I'd love to hear it. You know what? I, I think about it a lot and I, I would, I mean, obviously you're the expert in this or way more of an expert than I would be. I, I would imagine, or I would hope that, you know, safety would continue to improve. Security would continue to improve. Yeah. Really hope that I would hope that, uh, customer service, at least at the airport level, um, changes because I think yeah. it's one of these few, you know, I, I think about airports and I think about hospitals where it's like you, it's acceptable to be treated poorly. Whereas you think about other businesses, yeah, you, you, you get spoken to the way, let's say a security guard would get, would, would speak to you and it would be unfathomable. But I also know there's many, many layers to that. Right. And I know that sometimes, well, there's, there's a lot to that as to why, uh, someone might behave that way. And there's a lot of uh, second, third, fourth order effects. So I would just hope that in general, the experience becomes, you know, continues to be more secure, more efficient, more customer friendly. And I also hope that they figure out a way to get rid of middle seats or make <laughs> a little bit more, because I think that would also alleviate a lot of the concerns people have about flying economy, like an economy seat, if it's a window or aisle, and you don't have some annoying person elbowing you, uh, I, I think it's comfortable. Like there's enough leg room there to, to sit comfortably and sure. First class is wonderful for a overnight flight, but I don't know. Um, co- speaking of, of health and safety, do you think that air travel will dramatically change just in light of COVID or is it a matter of just making things more sanit- sanitized and, uh, cleanly, if you will? Yeah, I mean, it, the COVID question is really, like, I mean, it's changed so many industries and so much of the world, it's hard to even say. Like, I went to a shoe store, uh, actually, my girlfriend went to the store the other day, and there's, like, only two people can go in there. And if anybody touches a shoe or tries one on, they have to quarantine that thing for, like, four days now. And I just, like, Whoa. that that's how much the world has changed yeah. in the past two months, right? So hard to say where that goes. I, I think people love to travel, and I having sat at home for the past three months, the value of an in-person meeting is definitely, you know, I'm definitely reminded of that fact. I do a lot of stuff online as it is anyway with Flights and Expo and with several of the other virtual aviation worlds that I'm part of. And so, you know, being able to actually sit down and talk to people face-to-face, I don't think you can replace that. I think people love to travel. So I think it comes back. People in the industry are saying two to three years. For me, it's whenever the government stop reducing the quarantine restrictions. You know, you can't really go anywhere if when you come home, you have to sit in your house for two weeks. When that goes away, I think you'll start to see that improve, the, the demand for air travel improve. Hard to say if, you know, things really change when it comes to cleanliness and aviation overall. Like, the reality is, I mean, if you go on public transit, or heck, if I go out to my car right now, like, when was the last time I disinfected my car? Like, I don't know, probably never. Probably when it was new out of the, like factory is when it was cleaned you know there's places in my house that i probably don't get in my weekly cleaning but we expect that an airplane is like the cleanest place and i don't quite understand why that is Mm. there's already quite a bit that happens i mean we do clean airplanes there's some great quality air filters that are in there already i don't really feel personally that a whole lot needs to be done there i think it's the same as any other you know situation if you go on a bus if you go on a train if you go in someone else's car you're kind of exposing yourself to a little bit of germs and a little bit of dirt and i just kind of think that's life but then again that's me that being said i definitely want to agree with your point about customer service how the airlines have gotten away with 
being terrible to customers pretty much as a standard policy and people coming back. I just don't understand. And I, that honestly, that frustrates us or I'll speak for myself anyway, but that frustrates me more than anything else. When I see a customer service agent who's rude to a passenger or who's being difficult or heck, I mean, I, they're rude to me sometimes. And I'm like, we're all on the same team here. Like, you know, so I don't, I, I understand, I understand where it comes from having seen how passengers are, having seen how difficult people can be, I can get how if you've worked in that job for 15 years, it's a very thankless job. You work long hours. You basically get yelled at all day. I get how you'd become the way a lot of them are. But I think that comes back to the way companies are organized. And, you know, it's been another hour-long podcast talking about this. But I think the way that airlines have set up, it's just basically designed to create customers who are unhappy, unfortunately. And it because it takes so much to have everything go right and because everything is so expensive, just think about the cost of fuel. It's hard to really focus your efforts as a company on trying to make people feel good. It's a lot easier to say, well, we get 80% of the flights out on time. So the other 20% are going to suck. Sorry, you got stuck overnight somewhere and you had to sleep in the airport. Tough luck for you. That seems to be the way that the industry has gone. If there was one thing that could change in the next 20 years, I would love it for, I'd love for it to be that. I would love for the airlines to think of themselves, like you just said, like any other business, like a hospitality business, like a hotel. I mean, not- how come I can change my hotel reservation for free the day before I get there, but I have to pay hundreds of dollars if I want to change my flight? It doesn't make any sense, except for the fact that what the airlines are very good at is finding ways to make you pay for things that 30 years ago were free. It's on- and so if you look at all the premium economy benefits that you see today, all that is is what economy was 20 years ago. They just managed to make economy so bad that now you're like, okay, I will pay that extra $40 to get, you know, I don't know, a seat that isn't in the middle of the plane, in the middle of the row, beside someone I don't want to be beside. Like, it's crazy. It's unbelievable. And, you know, you have the business background, so you understand it probably more than a lot of uh, other pilots or professionals in this industry. And it is absolutely shocking. And you think about, all the upsell, all across sell, mm. and the fact that yeah, to your point, we've we've come to just accept this this standard of care. For the record, pilots, I've always been I've always been really really happy with, um, and I find that like you guys and you you gals um, are always very respectful, professional. Especially, I love when you come out at the end of the flight and you're like, you know, thank you. Like that's that's an awesome uh, that's an awesome uh, gesture. But yeah, it's. I, that's the one thing I hope improves. You mentioned Flight Sim Expo. Tell me a little bit more about this. What the, the amazing thing you've started and how people can learn more about it. Well, like you said, I think both of us grew up on flight simulation. And for me, it was a big part of why I decided to get into flying commercially and also a big part of getting me to that point. I mean, it's a fantastic training aid for pilots who want to, whether they are just looking for their recreational license or whether they're looking to go to the airlines or anywhere else in commercial flying, it's a fantastic tool. And then for people who just love aviation, I mean, if this was me before I got my pilot's license back when I was in high school, university, even when I was in consulting, I didn't think I was going to be flying as a career. I just thought, darn, this is a really cool thing to be able to do. And with a home flight simulator, which can be as simple as a joystick and a laptop, you can effectively see what it's like to fly an airliner. There are such realistic models in these simulators. You can literally do my job from your home and basically be able to do the same thing I do. You could fly, and people have unfortunately done it, you could literally take what you know from flight simulator in certain airplanes 
step into the real airplane and be able to probably fly it, you'd have a tough time landing it. And if you're going to do that, you're on your own. I'm going to stay down here <laughs> on the ground. But you could probably get it in the air at the very least. So what Flight Sim Expo is designed to do is to produce a conference and trade show that shows off what this is. And for pilots who are looking to train, it explains how this tool can get you there. And for enthusiasts, it's a great chance to meet this crazy market of gamers and of flight simmers and of pilots who are all passionate about this world of aviation just like we are. So we were supposed to have an event. I just saw on my calendar. I was supposed to fly to Vegas for the event next week, which is kind of a sad moment for me. Obviously, we're not doing that this year. And we're still very much connected in the virtual world with a lot of our developers and suppliers. So our, our world goes on virtually as does so many other events these days. But for people who are really looking for that in-person experience, and one of the nice things about it is if you've never done this or you're kind of getting started, what you can do at an event like this is try out the different control systems. So you can try this yoke or this set of hardware, this set of rudder pedals, this headset, and really get a sense as to how that would work for you, whether it's because you're passionate about flying or whether it's because you are looking to do this for a career. So Flight Sim Expo is our show. Next one will be in 2021 conditions permitting. But for people who are interested in simulation, there's a whole world of flying online that you can do where you can literally talk to virtual air traffic controllers, where you can be part of a virtual airline that includes ranks and training and you know on-time performance statistics and all those kinds of things. There's a wonderful world out there of flight simulation for people who are passionate about this. And I would encourage you to you know look at look at Google and find your way through that. Uh, organizations like VATSIM, V-A-T-S-I-M, or uh, Pilot Edge are great training resources. And there's just a whole lot more for people who are passionate about simming. I could, again, spend another hour-long podcast talking about that. It's my other side passion. What What's the URL for people who want to learn about Flight Sim Expo? www.flightsimexpo.com. And for people who are interested in kind of getting a start into simulation, look at us on YouTube as well. So Flight Sim Expo on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those places. YouTube especially, we have a series of videos from our 2019 show that kind of get you into simming. So if you've never done this before, it talks about what it is, why would you do it, and it literally gives you the how-to guide of getting started. So for people who are looking to get a little taste of aviation and people like me who can't fly right now, this is a great way to kind of exercise your flying passion. So www.flightsimexpo.com or find us on YouTube as well. Just followed you on Instagram. Nice. Evan, I am so grateful for this time with you. Um, it's it's such a, like air travel, such an amazing thing we have in this world. What a cool experience. And to be able to talk to someone like yourself who has who comes at it from so many different backgrounds it's it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. And I look forward to hopefully uh, hearing your voice on the intercom when I'm on a flight in the not too distant future. Yeah, good deal. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Always fun to talk flying when you can't actually be up in the air and appreciate you reaching out and all the best. Thank you.